Dogcast Radio. If you like dogs, wherever you are in the world, we're the show for you. Hello and welcome to episode 153 of Dogcast Radio. We're back and our first interview of 2015 is with Susan McKeown. I talked to Susan towards the end of 2014 and this interview is a mixture of Susan's personal journey, which is fascinating and moving, alongside her professional journey because not only has Susan taken a degree in canine behaviour and training, she runs Puppy School North Lincolnshire, helping puppy owners give their dogs a sound start in life and she's founded her own company, Happy Hands Training. She is fast becoming a greyhound expert, rewriting the Greyhound Trust's training leaflet in 2010, and she sat on the veterinary and behaviour panel at the retired Greyhound Trust's conference. And she's approached by greyhound owners across the UK on behavioural issues. She's gained invaluable insights into greyhounds and dogs in general, and her passion is helping owners understand and communicate effectively with their dogs. But it may surprise you to know that while Susan's life has now been taken over by dogs, she was more of a cat person. My background before becoming um, the canine convert, which is obviously the, the mm. name of my blog as well, the idea of a canine convert, yeah. was I'd always had cats. I had never envisaged that I would live with a dog, let alone own several or work with dogs, um, mainly because in the good old 1970s, in the days when dogs were often left outside of shops. Mm. I happened to be at the pointy end of a um, German Shepherd dog, mm. and there was another child at the rear end pulling its tail, and I got bitten in my tummy. Mm. Um, I was saved, thankfully, due to the Teflon-like fibres of 1970s clothing. <laughs> Um, and it was really only a bruise, but, you know, quite understandably, I was a little uh, wary of dogs. Yeah. Um, and also, my mum wasn't really a big dog lover, so they weren't something that factored yeah. in, uh, big into my life. Yeah. Um, but I loved my cats. I had, in 1992, uh, I'd sort of moved away from home, got my first cat, Chivers. He lived to the grand old age of 20. Mm. and added to sort of um, the cat family. I had Tazzy as well. He lived around to the age of 20, so they were very content mm. cats. And I loved my cats. I was a feline fanatic, and, yeah, my cats were just fabulous. When I was single, they stopped me having the Shirley Valentine moments of talking to the wall. <laughs> yes. And, you know, I could talk to Chivers and Tazzy, and Chivers, in one respect, was almost dog-like he he would follow me if I sort of went out of the house he would follow me and in a particular place I lived he would literally follow me to a friend's house and sit on the patio Aww. looking through the windows whilst I was you know spending an evening at my friend's and then quite happily trot back oh, to um, home sort of by my side <laughs> yeah. yeah so um yeah I I loved my cats um and it was actually down to the cats that I found out about Mina, who mm. was my first dog. Yeah. So tell me how you met Mina then. How I met Mina. Well, it was 2005. In fact, it was March 2005. And um, my husband and I were going to Barcelona for my birthday weekend. We often used to sort of um, go away for uh, weekends when it was our birthday. Mm. And I was dropping the cats off at the cattery, which was also a boarding kennels. And behind the counter, there was a notice about a female greyhound looking for a home and that she was good with children and cats. Hmm. Now, a couple of months earlier, for some reason, my husband and I had been talking about 
dogs. My husband had always grown up with dogs. Mm. And we had both said, you know what, we actually quite look like the look of greyhounds. Yeah. Um, and there was just something about that notice and things that were going on in our lives at the time that I thought, you know what, a dog may be a good idea. I think I could open my heart and my home to a dog as long as the cats are okay with the yeah. dog and vice versa. So we chatted um, about this whilst we were in Barcelona and thought, okay, what we'll do is we'll ring um, Mina's owner who was looking to rehome her because her circumstances had changed so she couldn't look mm. after Mina anymore. Um, and we would take it from there. So we got back to the UK, phoned the owner, and she said, yeah, come across and, and meet Mina. So um, we went across to the owner's house. The owner already had cats. She also had another dog. But as I said, her circumstances were changing, which meant that she couldn't look after Mina. And there was this beautiful brindle greyhound, a little bit subdued, sort of just lying on a red duvet in the corner. And you couldn't help not be smitten by her because she was very pretty and a very lovely dog. So we said, okay, yeah, we are really interested. But actually, what we need to see is how she reacts to our cats and vice versa. Because if the cats can't take to her we can't have her because at that point you know the cats have lived with me for a very long period of time and i was introducing you know top predator in the food chain if you like to a to a cat if you think of all the things the cartoons that you see with cats being chased by dogs uh, and particularly fast dogs so um mina's owner brought her across one friday evening and we had the cats at one end of the sort of lounge and mina at the other Mina wasn't that interested in the cats. The cats were a little, you know, they were a little yeah. concerned, but not to the point where I thought, actually, the cats can't cope. Mm. Because they were, it was, this was obviously before I started doing anything with uh, learning about dogs uh, and dog behaviour, but I wanted to make sure that both were calm, so they were both being fed nice things and seemed to be able to cope. So that was Mina's fate and uh, my fate, unbeknownst to me at that time, sealed. Uh And over that weekend, we picked up Mina and brought her home with us. And that's where sort of really my um, uh, journey, for want of a real cliched phrase, that they use obviously all the time on X Factor and the like. Um, (laughs) That's where my journey really started. That's so interesting because I do think so often it's the look of a dog yeah that attracts you and sometimes you know people look at dachshunds and think oh pretty little armpit dog and they're not but obviously mina's character as well yeah sort of entranced you it's it's sounding like yeah it did i mean i i will admit i did all the things i now counsel people not to do (laughs) when uh looking for a dog you know really the things that um, you know, experience has taught me, and we'll probably come on to that a little later mm. in the interview, particularly when it comes to Ava, um, is, you know, you need to research. You do need to understand the breed. Uh, you need to understand, you know, exercise requirements, understand temperament, all those sorts of things, you know, and whether they're, and particularly with, you know, some rescue dogs, whether or not they do have any potential behaviour mm. issues. There are all those sorts of things you need to consider. But, you know, I was quite smitten. Mm. by Mina and you know we made the decision she was going to come and and live with us and you know she did 
Yeah. And the, the switch was flicked, if you like, in my brain. Suddenly from being a feline fanatic, I really was converted over to dogs. I still love my cats. I still oh, have yeah. a cat. Yeah. But Mina was the beginning of um, my love affair with dogs, and in particular sight hounds. And also, as I say, unbeknownst to me at the time in 2005, she would be the reason for um, returning to education and studying a degree yeah. and starting my own business in, you know, working with people and dogs. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so so tell me about that then, because did Mina have issues or was it just she that did, you... She did, yeah. Okay, so tell me about that then. <laughs> okay, um, Mina had quite a... A, a few issues which we didn't really know about we knew potentially she wasn't um overly fond of other dogs but we sort of thought oh no no she'll be okay but there, there were a number of issues that that mina had um one was um there was an element i think of separation distress when we first had her so i think she was you know knowing what i know now and looking back i think there were issues with sort of um low levels of confidence and, and quite a bit of fear-based mm. uh, reactions to things. She showed signs of separation distress. So, you know, we would come home and on some occasions, um, on one occasion, like, you know, the door frame had been sort of um, chewed and, yeah. and scratched. Um, there were things where we would put her breakfast down, she wouldn't eat it, and then she'd bolt it the moment we got back home. Yeah. Um, there, there were a number of issues, but probably the, the biggest one was her reactivity towards other dogs, mm. uh, which wasn't, you know, favourable, no, <laughs> to, no. to, to say the least. And uh, living with a reactive dog is, you know, for, for many people, is, is very difficult and you don't realise what it's like until you've actually... Mm, mm. And of course, the dog reacts and you panic and it's a vicious circle yeah it it is a vicious circle and often we don't understand why the dog is reacting and you know these sort of behavior issues with 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 Mina I mean what what triggered it all um and this is unusual for the greyhound breed I should say uh in in general was um I was away for a weekend with work in 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 London I got a panicked call from my husband he said that, uh, unfortunately, Mina had had an altercation with a standard poodle. And I was devastated. We were both very worried. And my first instinct was, this is generally out of character for this dog. You know, she's a lovely dog. Let's get her to the vet and let's get her checked out and see if there's anything medical yeah. that's underlying. Now, this is, again, before I knew what I know now, which is, you know, obviously medical reasons can sometimes be underlying to a behavior Mm. issue so we sort of got Mina checked out and there are a few things that we found out one that for example her bone density wasn't very good and and that sort of correlates with the fact that she was a stray puppy she was found as a stray puppy and Mm. was in the pound and that's when her first owner got her so she obviously didn't get the right nutrition no, the did, did she race Susan no ah, she right, didn't. Okay, right okay so Mina never raced yeah um, and she was found as a stray puppy on the streets of Newcastle and then uh, was obviously put into a rescue shelter mm-hmm. and that's where her first owner got her from yeah so we know we knew her bone density wasn't great and we also the vet also discovered that a number of her discs had sort of appeared to have disintegrated in her spine wow so you know that could have been there could have been trauma. We yeah. d- we don't really know, but there yeah. could have been 
potential referred pain or, or something could have happened. We just mm. don't know. And, you know, the interesting thing is, I think, for lots of owners, we make up lovely backstories for our dogs. Yeah, yeah. We sort of guess as to why things may happen, but really we have to deal with what we see yeah. and, uh, and work, work through that. But, yeah, anyway, back to the story. So that was the first thing we discovered. Yes, there were some pain issues, but there were also some, you know, behaviour issues. Now, this was back in sort of um, 2005, Mm-hmm. and I contacted a, I think she was called a dog psychologist or something at the time, but a behaviourist, as we mm. would probably call them now, and had a couple of um, consultations looking at, you know, why Mina would react in certain ways, and it sort of began to spark my interest mm. in, in, in dog behaviour. Um, and I can clearly remember the um, first sort of dog behaviour books that I bought, Bruce Fogel's The Dog yeah. Mind, mm. because I thought, actually, you know, I want to, I want to find out a little bit more how, what, what's making this happen and, and what's making Mina tick. So I bought that. I bought Victoria Stilwell's It's Me or the Dog. Mm. I got quite a mix of books. And then I got um, Nicholas Dobman, The Dog Who Loved Too Much. Hmm. And they sort of, you know, they were very different sort of uh, books and approaches, and they sparked my interest in wanting to find out more about yeah. uh, what makes dogs ticks uh, and what have you. So I started doing, you know, more reading around the subject. And then in 2007, my husband and I and Mina and the cats moved to Lincolnshire. And that's where, you know, I'd moved to a new area and I was looking at things that I could do with Mina. And I discovered the Lincolnshire Greyhound Trust, hmm. which is an independent charity. Um, they do work closely with the Retired Greyhound Trust, but they're an independent charity. And they organised sort of quarterly Greyhound walks. And I think it might have been in March 2008, or it might even have been February. It was early 2008. There was an organised walk in some woods that were quite near to where I lived. So Sean and I went along with Mina and actually we sort of came away thinking, oh, you know, maybe we could have another dog. Mina seemed to be okay with other greyhounds. So we chatted and we talked more about it and we contacted Lincolnshire Greyhound Trust and went along to uh, one of their kennels and took Mina with us um, because we felt it was important that obviously Mina got on (laughs) <laughs> yeah. with with the dog and that is how we ended up with Stevie hmm. who was uh, an ex-racer who from the moment that he met Mina both of them got on like a house on fire got oh. on really really well um, Stevie came to us as cat trainable hmm. um, so I spent a lot of time working with Stevie to make sure that he was fine around the cats and he did require quite a bit of work and training and that's where the impulse control Mm. training comes in and sort of leave it we're lucky Stevie was very food motivated so he soon learnt that pay no attention to the cats and food rains from the heavens Mm. pay attention to the cat and the food stops so Susan at that point had had you done sort of classes with Mina or was it just you'd read you know you'd read I had no I had gone to a couple of classes with Mina Mm. And again, now it's the benefit of hindsight. I think the classes were a bad idea. Mm. Uh, and I think 
the, the reason for that is that Mina was afraid of other dogs. Yeah. That's yeah. where the behavior issues came from. It was a case of, I'm afraid of you. If I act big and scary, you are going to go away because mm. either my human is going to walk in the opposite direction or your human is. Mm. And actually putting her in a class at relatively close proximity to the things that she feared, I don't think was the right thing to do because she couldn't really learn in that environment. Yeah. It would be like putting somebody who was afraid of spiders in a room that was crawling with spiders mm. and there's no real escape from them. The chances are you just go into shutdown yeah. Yeah. and you can't process information. But I did go to classes with Mina and Mina was, you know, very bright. She hadn't read the books that said, greyhounds can't do this, greyhounds can't live with cats, you know, <laughs> you can't do this, you can't do that. And again, you know, one of my big beliefs is every dog is an individual. No dogs can read. Absolutely. They, they don't know that they're not supposed to do things. You know, it's like the bumblebee in theory shouldn't fly, but yes. it does. <laughs> so, you know, I'm a very big believer on, although there may be some breed dispositions, you know, which all breeds will show to an extent, mm. every dog is an individual mm. and you should work with that dog to their fullest potential. And Mina bust lots of myths. Um, yeah, about yeah. what greyhounds can and can't do, as did Stevie. Stevie had wonderful recall so yeah. from day one. Um, so, uh, yes, yeah, so we went to classes, but then Stevie joined us in um, 2008, and he was a big softy, a beautiful blue greyhound, oh. and it was through sort of Stevie that I became more involved um, at that time with the Lincolnshire Greyhound Trust. I would regularly go out on meet and greets and take Stevie with me. And there were lots of people who loved Stevie because he was pretty handsome, even though I do say so myself. <laughs> and being a blue greyhound, which is sort of the grey colour, mm. for those who don't know, um, he, he really stood out and he loved humans. So he really did like human contact. And I think he was responsible for quite a few people thinking, oh, I'd quite like to adopt yeah. A greyhound, yeah. and and I, I also became a, a committee member at that time of the the greyhound Lincolnshire Greyhound Trust as well. So I really, that's when I started becoming more and more involved in dogs, if you like. Fast forward another year, two thousand and nine, and two thousand and nine marked the beginning of I would say Mina's canine catastrophe hmm. years. Mina lived life to the full and at full speed, as only a greyhound can. Uh, but she did have her fair share of um, medical issues, shall we say. And I, I often joke that Mina was the reason that pet insurance was invented. <laughs> yes. Mina had issues with her eyes, and um, that, that came to a head in 2009. And she was referred to um, a fabulous specialist vet in Stanford and needed her eyes operating on she had, yeah, severe eye um, issues. Whilst Mina was having sort of the, the operation and recuperating, it also coincided with a period where I became ill. And what I did during that period, part of like sort of trying to get myself better and out of the house, I sort of helped a little bit at the um, greyhound kennels for the trust. Oh. And it was there that I happened to fall in love with another greyhound. <laughs> He was a very um, gentle boy at the time. He was called Magic. Mm. He's now called Jasper. Yeah. 
and yeah, I, I fell in love with him. Um, again, spoke to my husband and really pleadingly sort of said, well, can, can you come and meet him? Can, can we have another one, please? <laughs> Jasper got on brilliantly with Stevie. But the crux of the matter was how he got on with Mina. Mm. And because Mina had had an eye operation and was wearing the cone of shame, we couldn't really introduce them until she was um, a little better and the cone of shame yeah. was off. Yeah. So I tentatively reserved Jasper and waited, you know, the several weeks mm. before we could introduce Mina to him. And thank the Lord, they got on brilliantly. <laughs> <laughs> so Jasper then made three, and we had three in our Greyhound gang. Yeah, yeah. They are a very restful breed. There is something... My, my daughter loves yeah. Greyhounds, and, we, and uh, when it's a Cruft or any of the shows, you know, we, we have to go and up to the, the yeah. retired Greyhound Trust. And they are... They just kind of look at you or lean on you very slightly, and they are... They are very restful, aren't they? They they are. I mean, again, every dog is an individual. Yes, you get yeah. some, you know, young greyhounds are, you know, full of energy. But as a breed, you know, um, generally, they're pretty calm dogs. Yeah. They are affectionate. They they often make an ideal, you know, first dog, I would say. Yeah. They're, they're fairly low maintenance. Oh. Um, and, you know, they're, they're built for short, Burst of energy yes. and speed. Yeah. So the so Jasper, <laughs> yes, made made three, and mm. it was um, you know that was two thousand and nine, and I had started sort of inquiring around uh, that time about sort of courses and information, and it was actually through social media mm. and things like Twitter that I got in contact with people like um, Karen Wilde. Um, mm. Muriel Brasser, um, yeah. Kelly Gorman Dunbar, all of whom I've subsequently met, yes. and who started sort of guiding me towards various points of information or sharing their knowledge and sort of opening my eyes to actually what was out there. Mm. That sort of really started my inquiries. I then started looking at um, puppy school mm. and also were there qualifications that I could do and could, could I learn more about dog behavior and training of, of dogs because I, I wanted to understand for my own dogs but also be able to help other people who I yeah. could see were having similar issues. Mm. Mm. So 2010 was the year that probably everything changed. It was quite a pivotal year for me. I was made redundant from my marketing post at an airline and again, social media plays a role in this. <laughs> I saw a tweet about a um, temporary job opportunity in the press department at the Kennel Club. Hmm. And I'd been made redundant. It was the 1st of April. It wasn't an April Fool's joke. <laughs> but um, I thought, oh, I wonder if I could, could do that. So I applied for the job. You know, obviously not sure as to whether or not um, I would get it. And then um, a couple of days later, I was walking the hounds in the playing field in our village. My mobile phone went, and it was the Kennel Club um, asking me to more or less come down and start immediately as well as, well as have an interview because two posts had become oh. vacant <laughs> and they needed somebody to start ASAP. Yeah. So I 
sort of had my interview one day and more or less started the next day. Mm, fantastic. And, you know, it was it was fabulous because I was able to use my marketing and my PR, my business skills that I've developed over the last 20 odd years, mm-hmm. as well as, you know, marrying them with my love of dogs. Yeah. And, you know, finding out a little more about how the the Kennel Club operated, you know, and obviously the Kennel Club does have its um, detractors and people yeah. aren't keen on it. But it was a very interesting experience and I went with an um, open mind. You know, obviously I had seen mm. the, the television programmes like Pedigree Dogs Exposed, but I went with an open mind and it was a great three months um, yeah. of, yeah. you know, working with people, learning more about the dog world and um, an eye-opener. And... Whilst I was at the Kennel Club, I found out more about Puppy School. Mm. Now, this is Gwen, Gwen Bailey? This is Gwen Bailey's yep. Puppy School, yep. and it's a national network of um, puppy school tutors who've all been interviewed by um, Gwen and or her regional managers. who go through quite a, a rigorous sort of assessment procedure, several residential courses and weekends, and a correspondence course where you need to go away, get practical knowledge um, and, and write up that information yeah. before you're accepted as a, as a puppy school tutor. Yeah. So I, I did that in 2010 and started my classes as puppy school North Lincolnshire in 2011. Mm. But I also, in 2010, <laughs> as well as <laughs> applying for, you know, to become a puppy school tutor, I enrolled at university on a uh, part-time distance learning degree in canine behaviour and training. Which is a huge commitment, actually, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It is. Uh, uh, I know that now, sort of four years down the line, (laughs) quite what a commitment it is. Um, So... Yeah, that was sort of, if you like, I suppose, the the pivotal point where everything started to change for me. Um, And I really discovered, my goodness, you know, I love working with dogs and I love working with humans. Um, And I think, you know, we need to remember that it's the human end of the lead as well that we really need to work with. It's... It's great loving dogs, but it's the humans we need to also work with and gain their understanding and their buy-in to, you know, helping their dogs and understand why their dogs may be doing something or may not be doing something so that we can, you know, give them the right tools to to help their dogs survive and, you know, well, to live according to their sort of family rules. You're listening to Dogcast Radio on www.dogcastradio.com. The BBC recently analysed 10 years of microchipping data within the UK to find out whether people's geographical location has any effect on the breed of dog they choose. The data analysed included 5 million purebred dogs but did not take into account mixed breed dogs. The results are intriguing. For example, greyhounds, the featured breed of this show, were the most popular breed in Halifax, while in Liverpool, Shih Tzus were the most widespread breed. 
The Staffordshire Bull Terrier, which was the third most popular of those dogs who were microchipped, was the most popular breed in areas of Birmingham, Manchester and the South East. The second most popular breed, the Jack Russell Terrier, dominated in Northern Ireland, the South of Wales and the very tip of Cornwall. But the breed that was the most popular across the UK? Well, of course, it's the Labrador Retriever, which is the most popular dog breed not only in the UK, but in the USA too. If you want to find out more in depth, you can visit the BBC website, we have a link on the Dogcast Radio site, where you can see a breakdown, county by county, of who prefers which breed. Now, having said that in America the Labrador is the most popular breed, there are interesting geographical variations there too. So, in the Midwest, the second most popular dog breed is the Husky, while in the Northeast, it's the Golden Retriever. The German Shepherd is the runner-up, taking second place in both the South and the West of the country. But the American data, analysed by Vet Street, also revealed some intriguing quirks. For example, more pit bulls are owned in the South of the United States than anywhere else in the country. The Corgi made it in as the number six most popular choice in the West. However, it didn't make the top ten anywhere else in the States. But that well-established favourite, the Labrador, came top in all regions, with no other breed showing the same popularity across the whole country. So, what does all that mean? Well, I'd say it's very interesting, and it can be fun to speculate on the reasons, but ultimately, it doesn't matter whether the breed or mix of dog that you live with is popular or rare, as long as it's a good match with you and your lifestyle. Dogs are like people, they're all different, even those of the same breed, and that's the beauty of them because you're bound to find a dog that you can share your life with happily, no matter where you live. As I watched my dog chasing his tail, I thought, dogs are easily amused. Then I realised I was watching the dog chase his tail. And now back to the interview with Susan, where I asked her the tricky question of how she'd sum up her training philosophy. My my philosophy is, you know, first do no harm. Mm. That's that's my overriding philosophy. I um, am a member of the Association of Pet Dog Trainers UK. Mm. I'm also a member of the Pet Professional Guild. Um, yeah, mm. PPG. Um, and their overriding philosophies are force-free and reward-based training methods. Yeah. So my approach to training is very hands-off and it's not just about the behavior that the dog emits. So not just what we see, but also the underlying reasons, so if you like for want of a better word, the emotion. Because mm. you could get a dog doing the same behavior using different methods, but the underlying emotion may be vastly Yes. different and that mm. itself we know as emotional beings ourselves it's emotions that drive our behavior and how we respond mm. to situations and if force is used with humans all we need to see are the wars that are going on in the world and how people respond yeah. to that and punishment yeah. it you know generally doesn't solve problems it often makes them worse so my training is based as a force-free reward-based but it's also based, the foundations of it are based in science and how we know dogs learn, mm. which is through association and consequence. There's been an explosion in research into dogs over the last sort of 20 years 
we know more and more about um, their behaviour, the fact that the original studies um, that were done on captive wolves, which is, you know, where some of the um, alpha mm. status, pack leader status came from, those original studies have been rescinded by the author, David Meach, because it was a completely artificial yeah. Yeah, set up, you know, with yeah. captive wolves, that they weren't a natural uh, wolf pack. In the wild, we know that natural wolf packs have more of a sort of a family yes. structure with, you know, guiding parents, guiding, but none of this sort of real alpha dominance. We we don't need to be, you know, our dogs are not trying to be dominant and mm. take over the world. They don't have opposable thumbs. <laughs> And uh, in fact, in one of my recent blog posts, you know, I put the, from a dog's point of view, we're not trying to be dominant, you know, for heaven's sake, we sniff butts to say hello. Do you really yes. think we're going to be dominant? <laughs> so that's quite a long-winded answer, but in a nutshell, it's based in science, force-free, reward-based, mm. and looking at the underlying cause, why is a dog doing yeah. something? Yeah. So, you know, people often say, oh, my dog's jumping up, and I tell them no. And I'm like, well, that's great, because actually you're just rewarding your dog. You're giving them attention. Mm. Dogs don't understand the word no. What would you like them to do instead? I'd like them to sit. Okay, let's set it up so we can train your dog in every situation. You know, we start off simply, we build the dog up for success. Mm. So they learn to do the behavior you want and not practice the unwanted behavior. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, that must be so rewarding for you, because... I know myself, sort of, you know, little things like when Buddy used to get on the passenger seat and I'd say, get down, and he'd turn his head away. Yeah. And I would think, oh, he's pretending he can't hear me, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And actually yeah. he's going, you're really, really stressing me. And I, and I had no idea. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, as I said, there is, there's a wealth of knowledge out there, but also there's a, a wealth of misinformation. There's yes. lots of armchair experts. Yes, yes. But, yeah, we do know more about how dogs communicate with us and there's a lot of you know non-verbal communication mm. which as you said are things like you know head turns or uh, things like um, uh, lip licking or yeah. nose licking mm. or what's called whale eye mm. which is where sort of you get a crescent moon where you can see the whites of the eye where a dog's saying I'm really not comfortable or yeah. you know micro freezers yes. there's a whole range of things it's just as humans we're not necessarily cued into those mm. but in my classes that's what I you know hope to impart to owners and to sort of understand that when their dogs are telling them they're uncomfortable what they need to do to build that dog's confidence or to ensure that the dog you know can learn how to cope mm. with situations yeah yeah I mean I think that's that's brilliant because I can remember when I mean Buddy's uh, 11 now and I can remember when I went to puppy classes with him and it was quite it, it was basic training but they sort of got to the formal bit of sort of when you call him back and trying to get him to do a finish yeah. and I'm thinking well that's great but if I'm in the park with him and there's kids playing football there's no way on earth he's coming back to me so I don't need a finish no. I need a reliable recall yeah. but in other situations sort of you know, on a more fundamental level, I need to understand why he's doing what he's doing. Yeah. Not just to be told, do, you know, press buttons A, B and C and he'll do this, because yeah. it doesn't work like that. No, the real world is, isn't like that. And certainly the emphasis from, from my own perspective and, you know, the, the route that I've taken to, to come 
to being a uh, training instructor and once I finished my um, degree also sort of you know practicing behavior work uh, has sort of shown me the reasons you know why dog eating and hopefully be able to share that and explain to owners that their dogs aren't being obstinate yes. their dogs aren't willfully doing things wrong you know dogs don't really as far as we know now understand <laughs> the concepts of right and wrong you know, there's, again, there's a lot of misinformation about dogs looking guilty. There have been a couple of experiments to do with dogs where um, they were they were with their owners, and their owners were asked to leave the room, mm. and the dogs were told to leave some food in the room, as in not eat it. Mm. Now, the researchers, uh, for some dogs who didn't eat the food, but the food was taken away, the researchers told the owners that the dog had eaten the food, mm. and the dog looked guilty. And the dog hadn't done anything wrong, but that was in response to, to mm. the cues that the owner gives off of like yeah. being a little sterner, what have you done? Yeah. And those guilty dog videos we see oh. are actually really quite sad because they yes. are dogs that are giving these what are called appeasement mm. gestures mm. to say, oh, you're scaring me a bit. I haven't really done anything. You know, I'm, I'm, ju I'm just a dog. Please don't, you know, come any yeah. closer or do this or do that. So things like the grins or, mm. you know, the worried looking eyes yeah. that look guilty yeah. are just ways of dogs communicating with us in response to, again, often the, the physical cues that we may give off without realising. Yeah, absolutely. When you start, I mean, you know vastly more than I do. I'm not saying that. But when you start to be able to see some of those things, it kills all those, quote, cute videos, dead. Oh, you know. goodness. And yeah. there was one with, a, I think there was a little Down syndrome boy on the floor with a dog. And, and people, oh, isn't this sweet? Isn't this sweet? And I think, no. What I'm mm. seeing here is this dog actually, well-meaningly, but he's bothering that kid. Yeah. And the kid's actually saying, go away, go away. And I'm seeing frustration. But the dog's, like, not picking up on that. And I'd be calling that dog away. I wouldn't be posting the video. On, I, mean, yeah. I mean, that's quite a mild example. There's much, yeah. much worse than that. But, yes, it does kill it dead. You go, don't like that. Don't like that. Yeah. There's lots that I just, you know, I don't want to watch. Yeah. Because it's, sometimes it can be quite um, distressing. But, again, you know, a lot of it's about sort of um, educating people yeah. and the people who come to classes just to say this is your dog saying I'm uncomfortable generally you know when a dog is uncomfortable in a situation they need a reduction in the intensity uh -huh. um, to the thing that they are uncomfortable with so that could be increased distance uh -huh. from something that they're scared of or if it's a noise you know they, uh, that noise needs to be turned down or they need yeah. to be taken away from the source of the noise to where it doesn't bother them uh -huh. and then we need to at that level where the dog isn't reacting, start pairing it with, you know, good things. And yeah. this comes back to the association and consequence, which um, in scientific terms is um, classical conditioning, which is the association. The consequence element is operant conditioning. So that's, you know, when you do something, you get the, the reward. Now, I know that you want to sort of talk about greyhound myths. What greyhound myths have you relished busting oh gosh there's lots well one <laughs> is that you know they wear muzzles because they're really aggressive actually there are again scientific studies that look to science science is you know the best thing we know at this point in time scientific studies repeatedly show that greyhounds you know are one of the least aggressive breeds yeah. generally the reason they wear um, muzzles is when they're in their racing career they're used to wearing muzzles because you know when they're running at full pace mouths are open 
um, if their teeth caught another dog, even you know, not not um, mm. in uh, in an aggressive way, they're very thin-skinned. It can tear. Mm. They're also great. The, the muzzle's great for photo finishes. That said, you know, if a greyhound is wearing a muzzle when he's outside and has retired, that is a really responsible owner. Yes, and that is you know something that should be encouraged. Because, yes, greyhounds are trained to chase small furry things. Mm-hmm. Again, it comes back to every individual greyhound, as we're going to come on to, you know, one of the myths is they can't live with cats and the like. But until you are really sure of your greyhound's uh, personality and drive, having a muzzle on them, the basket plastic mm. uh, muzzle, is the best thing you can do when walking, walking them. They are yeah. used to wearing muzzles. But, yeah, the fact that they're aggressive is one of the the myths Uh, there are lots um one is obviously um they can't live with cats or other small furries because all they're going to want to do is chase them um that's not necessarily true as you know my own greyhounds have proven and countless others um every greyhound is an individual as in every you know dog is an individual some greyhounds can live really happily with cats and other small furries, but there are some that can't. You know, their prey drive is is too strong. So a responsible rehoming centre like um, any of the retired Greyhound Trust branches or a number of the other independent charities out there will, you know, assess dogs, uh, cats, sort of trainability, if you like, to whether or not they could be placed in a home with a cat. But that's one of the big myths, that they can't live with other other small furries. I know plenty of greyhounds that have been placed in homes with cats, chickens, rabbits, chinchillas. You know, some of them are very, very laid back. Yeah. Jasper, yeah. for example, really didn't need any cat training compared to Stevie. Yeah. And Jasper had raced more, so mm. or done more races, had yeah. a yeah. higher number of races. So that's one mm. myth. The other is that you can't teach them recall. Again, every dog is an individual. Yes, you can teach recall. Stevie came with amazing recall. And Mina would recall and retrieve. Again, things that greyhounds aren't supposed to do. But again, they don't need books. So, you know, they they can do um, many things. Uh, Other things that people say is, gosh, they must need, you know, you must need to walk them for hours and hours each day. Again, not necessarily, no. Generally, you know, greyhounds are built for speed, not stamina. Uh, most are happy with sort of two 20-minute walks a day, mm. which means, you know, they're often suited to homes that may not have the time for very long walks. Yes. That yeah. said, they can walk for longer, but you need to build their stamina up. Yes. Okay. We also get things um, like, you know, picky eaters because they are always so thin. Again, that's not true. Most greyhounds have really good appetites, but they are naturally slim dogs. Yeah, yeah. Uh, You know, and in reality, you should probably be able to see the the outline of the last three ribs. You you really don't want to see an overweight greyhound. You know, some greyhounds can be picky eaters, but, you know, all dogs can be picky. Mm. Um, And probably the biggest one is, and... um, the one that I really want to disprove is you can't train a greyhound to do anything other than run. Yeah, yeah. And and that most certainly isn't true. Most greyhounds who have come out of um, racing kennels will not have been taught any voice cues. No. no. Or any basic 
obedience, for want of a better word, um, during their racing careers. But that doesn't mean that they are incapable of learning new behaviours. And again, you know, my my greyhounds are are examples of that you can do lots of them. And Mina, God bless her, um, she learned to do tricks. Yeah. We could do trick training. We had a great sort of um, unroll the carpet trick and then lay down on the carpet. Mina enjoyed doing agility. Yeah. She loved scent work and fun scent work. We used to get Mina to search for cheese and do the talking dog scent work, which is just (laughs) amazing. Yeah. And, you know, as I said, she could do recall. She, you know, most of the things that you thought, oh, can I do this? Mina could do. Yeah. She hadn't read the books. (laughs) No, she hadn't. She hadn't read the books. Sometimes I think that's the trick because... You know, I've I've only dabbled, but when I did sort of, you know, Cruft or Bust for a year, and I tried things that I would have just gone, "Mm, but he can't do that, you know, and he blooming well did it, you know, and you go, it's my expectations. Yeah, yeah, it is. We, you know, humans, our natural instinct is to label. Mm. We like to label each other, we like to label dogs, um, and, you know, there is a great... um, uh, behaviourist and animal trainer, Dr. Susan Friedman, oh. and she always talks about you know unlabeling and sort of just looking at the, you know what, what what is the function of that behaviour that the animal is showing, oh. and you know look at that underlying function because we all do behaviour for a reason. Find the reason, then you can look at how you can alter the behaviour, yeah. and you know unlabel things. Try oh. not to think in labels. Yeah. But yeah, th- I mean those are some of the you know the the common myths about greyhounds as I said you know each of my greyhounds has learned new things each of them have taught me new things you know Mina was reactive to other dogs that was fear-based Stevie again god rest his soul he was worried by sounds Mm. so loud clanging sounds fireworks those sorts of things were awful to see and Jasper Again, a a product of his environment, you know, hadn't been exposed to many situations as a, I would imagine, a young pup, Hmm. you know, has been afraid of lots of things and still can be, you know, a number of years later, you know, five years later, Jasper can still be worried by things. And, and, And that's where sort of my, the understanding that I now have of, you know, why dogs are worried about things is why I'm so committed to um, puppy school and mm. giving puppies the, and their owners the best possible start that they can get and an understanding of what they need to do to make, you know, their their puppies 21st century resilient to cope with what life is going to throw at them in a, a busy home uh, environment. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, really, Mina's, you know, that's Mina's legacy in a way, isn't it? Yeah. That she's, she's taken you down that path and... I absolutely agree with you that dogs are all individuals. They're all a different adventure. And sometimes the trick is being brave enough to go on that adventure. With yeah. Going, I didn't want this adventure. I wanted, no. you know, I wanted, I wanted a nice, easy dog. Yes. I yes. think my life would have been very different if my first dog had been an easy dog. Yeah. I yeah. probably wouldn't be having this conversation with you. Mm. But Mina wasn't the easiest of dogs. But by golly, you know, she has taught me a lot. Yeah, and yeah. also, I think one of the biggest things she 
gave was empathy or for my part and understanding how other people feel mm. and I have to say when I look back to my early days of Mina you know life before sort of knowing what I know now mm. some of the training classes I went to the trainers lacked the empathy gene it had sort of disappeared mm. it was all you know quite sort of um, old school you know well the dog must be here the dog must do that and actually yeah. Most pet owners don't want that. There's only no. a small percentage that participate in the competitive sports. And we just want well-behaved dogs that yeah. can cope with what life throws at them. But as you've already said, you know, you don't, can't push button A or push button B. Our dogs are not robots. They don't no. come pre-programmed with an instruction no. manual. They are a product of our environment and what we do with them. Mm. Absolutely. Look into the future. Yeah. Um, I know... You've, you've got Jasper, yeah. um, but you, with Ava, yeah. um, she's been kind of um, in, in the night. I mean, in a nice way, but sort of a blank canvas almost. That well, as much as a dog can be, you know, yeah. that you can. You've been able to shape her more from the start, haven't you? Precisely. I mean, I've been very fortunate. I mean, again, just so people um, understand, I know you know this, Julie, but Mina passed away in February of this year, mm. in June, and it was completely unexpectedly. Yeah. And I think it was fate or Mina <laughs> overlooking us. You know, I like to think of those things. We welcomed a young greyhound puppy into our home. Yeah. And then six and a half weeks later, said goodbye to Stevie. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's odd how life turns things around. But, yeah. I mean, Ava was, you know, we hadn't planned to get a greyhound puppy. However, that said, my husband always knew it was something that I always wanted. I have always wanted to have a greyhound puppy. And as you've sort of said, it's that blank slate. I would love to see a greyhound's potential. Mm. And, you know, what what can you do by giving that greyhound the best start in life? And I, I'm not saying they don't get the best start in life at racing kennels. It's a very different start in life. Yes. They are, in racing kennels, you know, they are not bred to be necessarily pets. Mm. You know, and it, I think it's a testament to the breed on how well they adult, adapt yeah. post-racing. The majority of them, obviously not all do, to life in a home. You mm. know, it's, it's a real testament to the breed. But we found out about Ava on a Thursday, or I found out about her via Facebook mm. and a friend who runs a branch of the Retired Greyhound Trust. Spoke to my husband um, about her on the Friday. I'd sort of tentatively reserved her. Mm. At, at this stage and he said yeah you know what I think it probably is right knowing that I'd always wanted a greyhound and we sort of had an inkling even at that stage that you know Stevie's health was failing mm. Mm. so we said okay well subject to going to see her because what I wanted to see was how what her temperament was like mm. how resilient was she could you know if she was terrified because she was about 13 weeks old and again you know, most pet dogs come to homes at the age of eight weeks. Yeah. And that's yeah. that sort of critical, often called a sensitive period between sort of eight and 12 weeks, which is the optimum period for um, socialization and habituation. So getting your puppy used to the things they can expect to encounter in everyday life. Yeah. Um, and that window starts to close the older the dog gets. So met Ava and, you know, I'd, as I said, I had said to Sean, if she's not right, we can't take her. If she's terrified, I'm not taking her as much as I would love to because I can't mm. have another project. Mm. Thankfully, 
she wasn't. <laughs> she wasn't terrified, and we were smitten. Yeah. You know, she was um, a little uh, black puppy. She was a result of an accidental mating in oh. racing kennels. Um, although there are, you know, um, probably thousands of greyhound puppies that are bred, or hundreds that are bred each year, they are generally bred for racing, and most people don't see puppy greyhounds. No, no. I've, I've had people comment to me, you know, I've been a vet nurse for 18, 20 years. Hmm. I've never seen a greyhound puppy. No. So, yeah, we've, we've ended up with um, Ava. Uh, greyhound puppies, for those who don't know, are often called uh, land sharks, <laughs> believe it or not. <laughs> and that's because they move away and they move around so fast and apparently have very sharp teeth like a, <laughs> like a shark. I mean, I have to say, you know, thankfully, having been a puppy school tutor... Um, knowing now what I know mm. and what I'm still learning, because I don't think we ever stop learning, it's really helped me with Ava. Yeah. But it's also what it's really proven to me is to get it right with a puppy is hard work, is really hard work. Mm. You know, for, for, for lots of people, I think that's where, you know, some of the, the common puppy issues that I see is just again through perhaps not understanding why puppies do certain things so having that knowledge now means that you know I know with Ava that she's teething so she is going to need lots of good things to chew mm. um, I don't want her chewing my furniture so I am going to anything that is a particular temptation I will remove out of the environment mm. because I don't want her to learn the habit yeah, you know, yeah. I, dogs don't break rules. They learn habits they enjoy. Mm. And if we, it's like us, you know, if we start a habit, we know it's quite difficult to break habits. Mm. And it's the same with puppies. Mm. So um, yeah, there are lots of things that I've learned with Ava, and it's really nice to see her responding. Mm. Um, mm. And again, it's all force-free reward-based techniques. You know, Ava sits naturally. Not all greyhounds will sit naturally no. just because of their conformation. Both Mina and Stevie sat. Mm. Jasper doesn't. He's too long-legged. It's really uncomfortable for him, so I never make him sit. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, we're working on lots with um, Ava. Um, I've been to a friend's puppy class, mm. um, and I'm also enrolled on the life skills, the puppy life skills classes with her. Because I'm lucky I have the University of Lincoln down the road yeah. and I'm in the puppy life skills classes with her. So I'm taking her to those Excellent. classes and working through the issues. When, when we first got her, she was terrified of traffic, mm. terrified of traffic. So I started playing um, traffic sounds on a very low level in the house and pairing it with, you know, feeding her tasty sort of food reinforcers. Hmm. increased the level of the, the traffic volume to a point where, you know, she wasn't showing any reaction to it. Then I sort of worked, we're lucky we've got quite a nice big front garden. We do live on a road in a relatively quiet village, but we get enough traffic going through and we get big farm traffic. So just sitting in the garden with her on a lead, when traffic went by, allowing her to move away from it, but also feeding her food and gradually moving her closer. Hmm to the traffic so she didn't react then to sort of you know the bottom of the street just sitting watching traffic go by feeding food till eventually I was able to take on a very short walk traffic going by 
feed food. It's that association and, com- and, yes. and consequence. You know, often it's for a lot of dogs, it might be, oh, I'm really afraid of that rumbling tractor. Oh, I want to get away from it. But if every time they see a tractor, it equals a bit of food in their brain, it's like, well, I don't need to worry about that because that signals good things happening. And over time, you start, you know, you don't have to use food all the time. You start fading it out gradually, and which is what we've started doing. But again, new situations I take her into. If it's been raining and the road's still wet, the traffic makes a different sound. So I have to then reward her for not sort of reacting. Like, oh, yeah, you've seen that car. There you go. You don't need to worry. So it's all those sorts of techniques that really what what I want with Ava is for her to grow up without the issues that Mina, Stevie and Jasper have or have. So, you know, I I don't want her to be afraid of other dogs. I don't want her to be afraid of humans. I don't want her to be afraid of noises. I want her to be able to cope with what life throws at her. But also I will respect what she's telling me if she's uncomfortable in a situation I'm not going to force her to sort of suck it up and live through it I'm going to do you know my best to you know occasionally obviously there are circumstances where you things happen they're beyond your control Mm. and you know you have to work through them but the way that I like to look at things is you know my training with Ava is a bit like a bank balance Mm. every little bit of um good stuff that happens to her be it food or playing with toys is a deposit in the bank balance Mm. and I want that bank balance to always be in the black occasionally I might have to make a withdrawal but if my bank balance is generally in the black that's not going to be an issue if that makes sense yeah and that's how I sort of I I tend to use a lot of analogies but that's how I try and get things across you know (laughs) we want a positive we want our bank balance to be in the black Mm. occasionally we have to make a withdrawal we can't make another deposit immediately as long as your bank balance is healthy that's fine but if you're in the red always that's not fine yeah that's that's a good way of thinking of it yeah yeah and that's what i want to you know think think of with training that's lovely um where can people find out more about you on the internet well there's lots of places but um my website is www.happyhoundstraining.com .co.uk um, they can find me on Facebook there's also Happy Hound Dog Training so facebook.com yeah. forward slash Happy Hound Dog Training they, okay. can, they can find me on Twitter <laughs> <laughs> at and then I'll spell um, my personal account which is S-U-K-E-S-U Thank you, Susan, and the best of luck with Ava. I love the way a dog changed Susan's life and gave her a whole new career, and I wish her the very best for the future, and I know a lot of dog owners and dogs will have happier lives thanks to her. If you'd like to find out more about her or contact her, you can find all the relevant links on the Dogcast Radio site. One evening at Checkers, the film was Oliver Twist. Rufus, as usual, had the best seat in the house on his master's lap. At the point when Bill Sykes was about to drown his dog to put the police off his track, Churchill covered Rufus's eyes with his hand. He said, Don't look now, dear. I'll tell you about it afterwards. Winston Churchill, The Little Brown Book of Anecdotes. While we've been on a break, Buddy unfortunately developed another lump in October last year. We were extremely worried as it was much bigger than the other lumps he's had 
and we were dismayed when a needle aspiration revealed that the lump was another mast cell tumour, in other words, cancer. This was his fourth cancerous lump, and at nearly 12 years old, we arranged for surgery with sinking hearts. However, the vet gave him a pre-op check and declared him very fit and healthy, and once more, thank goodness, he came through the surgery better than we could have hoped. A few days later, while he was recuperating at home, being indulged and given very tender loving care, we got the good news that the cancer was a low-grade tumour with no evidence of spread. In December, Buddy celebrated his 12th birthday, and I'm delighted to tell you that he is still in great spirits, he adores chasing a tennis ball, is always up for a walk, and is generally full of enthusiasm for life. We'll be back next month with a fabulous interview with Pamela Dennison about her training approach with reactive and aggressive dogs. In the meantime, you can contact us direct or via Facebook and Twitter. So, till next time, look after yourselves and your dogs. Thanks for listening to Dogcast Radio, available from www.dogcastradio.com. That's D-O-G-C-A-S-T radio.com. If you'd like to get in touch with us, and wherever you are in the world, we'd love to hear from you. You can do so in a variety of ways. You can contact us on Skype with the ident Dogcast Radio. That's all one word, Dogcast Radio. By email, you can contact me on Julie at dogcastradio.com When contacting us by email, if you have the facilities, please record your questions or comments and send them to us as an audio file. That way we can include them directly in our programme. We can accept most formats, for example, WAV, MP3. All these methods of contacting us can be found on our website, which is www.dogcastradio.com And as ever, the final word goes to Jenny. How did the little Scottish dog feel when he saw a monster? Terrified!